talk with Ramsey. What's good? Uh, this is Philip, your host, and you are listening to The Wall Behind and Beyond. Today's show is a two-part episode that will introduce our listeners to both sides of a controversial discussion. The topic today is very real and yet destructive. Uh, it's the school-to-prison pipeline. In this first part of our episode, my friend and reentry coach, Baron Hicks, of the Getting Out with Grace reentry series, will be asking me a series of questions, and we will have an open dialogue that will break down what the school-to-prison pipeline is and what it looks like in terms of the human toll. We want you to be able to identify it and understand it so that uh, you can do everything in your power so that you or your loved one does not become a victim of it. Um, the second part of this episode will explore the academic side of the school-to-prison pipeline subject. And we have two distinguished guest speakers who I'm honored to have join us and give our listeners more facts that they have discovered throughout their research and studies. We welcome to the show Dr. Studi S. Copalera, who is a PhD and assistant professor who comes to us from the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology at the same Houston State University. And her student, Imanet Andabo, who studies juvenile delinquency and juvenile justice, and more importantly, has made a video series herself, which I have read and thought it was an excellent piece, by the way. It is entitled The School of Prison Pipeline. With that being said, let's get to it, because we have a lot to cover. I will now turn it over to Merritt, who will open things up. Hi, thank you, Philip. I'm, I'm honored to be here. You know, there's, there's a lot to talk about regarding the school to prison pipeline. And some people might get the impression that kids literally go from school into prison. But, but I want us to go back farther. Um, Philip, I'd like us to talk a little bit about your home and community life for a few minutes. Uh, before a kid goes into school, they're coming out of that home, they're coming out of that community. Can you give us a picture of what home looked like when you were little? Were both parents in the house? Was there structure, like eating meals together, bedtime routines, getting ready for school in the mornings? What, give us a couple of memories um, that were significant for you um, about your childhood, like before you were going into school. Um, yes, for sure. I think that was a couple of questions in one, but I'll take the first one. Um, I'll say that my earliest recollection, uh, which is around four years of age, aside from my father's addiction to alcohol and my mother's drug use, where I'm from, things like that were pretty normal. So I had thought for a long time, well, you know, this is no different than the rest of the people that I know or my friends coming up. And I said normal because my father had a full-time job, so our bills were paid, and we had food to eat. But until the age of five, I also had a two-parent home, and I was the only child until the age of three. Um, with my father being drunk each day after work, when he got home, him and my mother would fight. I think she was unable to tolerate her husband coming home out of it and not being able to talk about anything or be present due to his state of drunkenness, right? Uh, my mother didn't drink. She just used heroin and cocaine. And as a result of this, there was no peace in our home 
because they fought almost every day. And I, w- I would be standing right there crying and jumping on my father's back. Uh, but this didn't prevent them from doing it again the next day. So my trauma started early because I had to see this all the time. Um, the next thing you asked was about structure, uh, like eating together, bedtime, and getting ready for school in the morning. Um, we didn't eat meals together. And I thought that was just on TV. You know, there was no, no bedtime routine either because we had no adult present. Um, and because there was no adult present, we never got up to school. My mother was not there to wake us, get us up, or get ready, or send us off. So we just stopped going because either we didn't wake up or we didn't have what we needed to be focused or to learn in school. And we might didn't even have clean laundry. So we were just raising ourselves and literally had no one to take care of us. Uh, I got a a few memories. I'll just give you one. One of them was I was um, six years old. And at that time, one of my brothers was three. And one of my brothers was just being born. He was a newborn. So my mother was gone. And we lived in the projects on the ninth floor. There was no security parameters in the windows or nothing. You could literally open the window and just jump out to your desk. That's how it was. And we were six, three, and one, or, or, or a couple of months. So I was trying to get him up on the top bunk. And my genius six-year-old brain told me, since I couldn't lift him, to put him up there and climb with him because I wasn't strong enough to put him on a sofa cushion and then try to hoist him to the top bunk and then just let him, you know, just roll over onto the bunk, I guess, so I could get up there and just, uh, you know, play with him or watch him, right? I get, I put him on the pillow and lift him, and while I'm putting him over my head, the pillow tilts, and my newborn brother fell and um, hit his face on the floor. And uh, he was hollering, and so I knew he was alive, but <laughs> I was alone. I was, and I, he was an infant, so my mother, she wasn't home. I didn't know what to do. I didn't call her. There was no phone. And then I never told her about it. And I don't know if my brother had some type of brain injury or his head was messed up or anything. I just act like nothing ever happened. But it's stories like this that uh, shows you the detriment of children being left unattended and not having an adult for days or hours or however long, because she was gone all the time. But this is a, these things happen constantly, and we didn't know what to do. And so I just left them alone and act like they never happened. Wow. Wow. And, and she didn't notice that his mouth had a bruise or anything. She didn't know that his mouth had a bruise. She didn't notice any bruising or anything. She never knew about it. He was. He had a bruise um, over his eye. And I think that she was gone so long that she was always high. She came home. I don't even think she paid him any mind. You know, I was the one taking care of. You know, basically, I was the the father at six of two young kids. Um, And... I'm just surprised nothing worse happened because uh, we really, we surely didn't have any supervision whatsoever. It was, it was just crazy. Wow. So, Philip, did you hit the streets uh, early? Did you hit the streets as a little kid? Um, yeah, we stayed out in the streets all day and all night until we got 
got time, and then we came home and then went to sleep. Um, my mother wasn't there. Nobody was there. Um, me and my brothers had no parental authority or guidance. Um, we had no rules or life concepts back then because my mother only rented a house so that she had somewhere to leave us. And these stories are not because I have a problem with my mother. She's rest in peace. She's not here. I don't have a, I'm not, I'm not, um, saying it because I have a, I hate her or anything like that. I love my mother. It's just that the facts is what it is. So she would rent a house. So she had somewhere to leave us. And I mean, she would take the food stamps that she got from the government every month on the first. And she'd buy a bunch of food and just put it in the cabinets in the refrigerator. And then it's like she was saying, okay. So long, I'm out of here. So she would leave the house, and she wouldn't return again that whole month, except on the, on the occasions when she came home to change clothes or get a little bit of sleep. So we rarely saw her. So we just woke up every morning and went outside wandering around the neighborhood or going to our cousin's house to eat when we ran out of food. But yeah, we stayed, that's where we was, was at, mainly. We stayed in the streets, we came home to go to sleep and then start all over the next day and just go hang out with friends and other little kids that was running around. So, so I think when, when we talk about the school to prison pipeline, we're assuming that there's a structure in place um, from which kids go to school. And, and I wanted to bring these stories out because that didn't exist for you. Um, I mean, the, the school to prison pipeline assumes that you've had breakfast, you, you've washed up, you've gone to school, and now you're acting out and having trouble in school, and you weren't even on first base. Um, so let me, let me ask you another question. How old were you when you began hustling on the streets? Uh, I wanna, before I answer that, I want to go back to what you just said. There's a difference between the school-to-prison pipeline and the street-to-prison pipeline because um, you don't necessarily have to be going to school in order to become a part of the school-to-prison pipeline because if you don't show up to school, truancy is going to start looking for you. Um, back when I was coming up, they didn't do a lot of looking for you if you didn't have a phone. We didn't have a phone in our house. But it was a way for you to get in trouble while you were running the streets, but at the same time, you could go from the streets to the prison, mm -hmm. even if you didn't have a lot of time spent at school. So I think there's a, a disparity with that. You If you live in the way that I did, then you're gonna meet the system whether you go to school every day or whether you're just hanging out in the streets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so to answer your other question, um, how old I was I when I began hustling on the street and what did that look like? Um, I started about 13 years old. That was when I was, wasn't going to school and when I was hanging out in the streets. Uh, when I first went out there with this older dude, he was, he was scared to be out there on the corner. So he basically recruited me. I don't know if he was scared because, you know, he would go and get more time if he was arrested or he was scared of the dudes that was out there that's telling you, you know, you just can't come on this corner and hustle. But me, I was just 13 years old, so I didn't know no better. I'm trying to make some money. So I would go out there on the corner and do it. After I make the money, he'd just buy me some food and give me $100 or something a week. And back then, they called that like a salary. Um, but for the most part, you don't get no money until the package is done. This is what they was doing to the kids. Uh, a lot of times, I didn't make a lot because I wasn't even old enough or smart enough 
to ask how much I was going to make. So I'm out here, you know, just trying to fit in, uh, learn something, and just tag along with these older kids. And uh, found myself put my, my life in danger and also set myself up for a juvenile record <laughs> when I wasn't even making enough that I could even do anything to take care of me and myself and my brother. So I'm selling another I'm selling another dude drugs and barely making anything for it. Eventually, I learned how to find my own plug and buy my own, which was easy because you know drugs was everywhere when I when I was in the streets. And back then, you could have it fronted to you, and that gave you like your startup money. And eventually, you started working for yourself. So now you will make the profit. And as I got around seventeen. I decided I didn't like standing on no corner waiting for the police to come arrest me. So I began robbing um, other drug dealers and taking their packages. And then I had my cousin out there on the street selling that for me. You've been a go-getter from the beginning, haven't you? I call it survival. You know, you got to eat, you got to stay alive, and you have to take care of yourself. So... So school must not have had much meaning for you then. Not at that not at that point. But I do know when I went out to California to live with my mother's mother, who was my grandmother in California, she uh she was a traditional parent and she made sure that I stayed in school. And so even though these early years that I'm telling you about when I wasn't going to school Every time I would be sent out to California to live with my grandmother, I had to go to school. And so I learned a lot. I did excel in school when I was there, but it was because I didn't have all the worry and the the concern and the, you know, I had so much other troubles in my life when I was back with my mother that I couldn't even think about no school. I didn't want to show up for school, let alone get up in the morning. Um, uh, I played sports when I lived with my grandmother, and I was good at everything. Um, I actually liked school, and I was popular in school. Um, I used to rap. Um, and this was in the 80s, too. Um, I was breakdancing. Um, I had a lot of girlfriends. But to answer the very the, the end of the question is that um, I was a good reader, and I could spell almost anything. Because one of the requirements for me to go out of the house when I was with my grandmother is that I had to memorize 10 vocabulary words every day before I could go outside. And um, for a child that's uh, 14, 15 years old, you try to go outside. At school, I'm ready to go outside. So I would sit there and I would memorize the words quick and tell her, yeah, I'm ready. So she would actually go through each one and say, spell it. And if I couldn't, then there was no outside. So, of course, I memorized them all for fashion. So it sounds like the structure that your grandmother provided for you helped you to have a, a, a good start with learning and um, and with being able to read and knowing how to learn. Absolutely. That was the reason why I like books. I love books right now. I read everything. Um, that's the reason why I love learning. You know, it was because of that. Her um, making me go to school, her telling me to learn these words, um, and I was able to learn how to speak, you know what I mean, because of what she she made me do. Um, being in um, Baltimore with my mother, 
um, and not going to school. I wasn't learning anything, and so it was fun for me when I did finally move with my grandmother. Not only this is how it was, I would go to my grandmother when my mother would go to jail, or, or when my mother got when we got. You had sixty seconds remaining. Um. So that's my that was the reason I was sent to California. So I was living with my grandmother off and on, and so in between these periods when I was away from my mother, that's when I would go to school. That's when I would play sports. That's when I would you know um, be around my family. Um, so that's uh, that that so you can have some context for why at certain points in my life I did excel, and then at other points you know it all went bad. And when I went back to Baltimore for the last time, is what you have thirty seconds remaining. I got locked up for this case on that last trip back to Baltimore when my grandmother put me out. So I'm going to call back. Hello, everybody. This is Philip Allen Jones, and I'd like to let everybody know how you can reach me or how you can find me. Please go to www.jpay.com slash 881-507 at Washington State. If you want to reach me by email, www.grantparoletophilip.com. That's my website. Um, for my podcast, you can go to Spotify at the wall behind and beyond. And I have a petition on change.org slash in need of a second chance. Grant Parole to Philip Alvin Jones. Uh, on Facebook, just type in Philip Alvin Jones. Um, Instagram at Philip underscore Alvin underscore Jones, all lowercase. And Twitter at Philip A Jones seven one. I look forward to hearing from everyone, and please support me and follow me um, as my case uh, depends upon it. Thank you. Okay. Hello. That's quite a story that you've shared so far, Philip. Um, you you know, it sounds like um, other than your grandmother's aspirations for you, there wasn't anybody else talking to you about college or a career or thinking about the future, that it was really about day-to-day -day survival. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh there was no talk um, about college. I never heard anybody talk about college. Yeah. Um, and nobody in my family that was born before me ever went to college. Um, there was no talk about education beyond the 12th grade. You know, you just, I just thought you go to 12th grade, you graduate, you know, and that was that. Um, and because there was so much instability in my life, and because I was going back and forth from resident to resident, relative to relative, I didn't have a chance to figure out what I wanted to do or who I really was or what, what, what my life path should have been. Right. Um, so I was just on the streets looking for trouble, you know, not really looking for trouble, but it was there, you know what I mean? It was uh, the people that I hang with, the kids that I was around, they were all doing it. And my first um, encounter, even though we're talking about the fact that there was no mention of college or building any careers, none of that was talked about, I was just... My dad intended for me only to go to school, come home, survive, and not get in any trouble. But I got caught up with the juvenile system by sheer mistake. So when I told you uh, one time about 
throwing a rock in the air and the rock hits somebody's car window, that wasn't no malicious or criminal act because I was playing with some female that I liked and I was just like basically teasing her and throwing rocks at her, but I wasn't trying to hit her. It ended up hitting her mother's car. So she ran in the house and I told her mother, and then her mother called the police. Now I called my father. He said, okay, I'll be there. So he came, he told the lady, he said, I work every day, I'll pay for it. Even though I don't live with my father, I just called him because that was the only place I knew. Um, so the police took me to the station for that. Um, even though they had made an agreement. When I get to the station, they write me up like a juvenile and give me a court date because of a uh, malicious destruction. So 30 days later, I go to court and they say, we're going to detain you in um, a juvenile facility. So my father's like, well, why, would, why do we need to go to a juvenile facility when he, when I paid for that car window? So he still got to go to court because it's got to be disposed of. But we're going to hold him in juvenile. I was confused because my father was like, oh, you coming home, you know, we already paid for this. We got to go down to court though and make sure, you know, we get the law clear. So that was my first um, thing. And then when I did go to court after they locked me up, they put me on probation indefinitely as a juvenile. So I wanted to put that out there so it could be known that once you hit the system, um, no matter what your, 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 your intention or your family's intention is, the system will take control of your life and they will make it so that you're a part of that system because I couldn't get on probation. Especially I got in trouble again while I was still on probation. So I wanted to put that out there before we concluded. Thanks. Thanks. I wondered how it was that you got, uh, tangled up in the system as a kid. You know, in in looking back together, I imagine that you experienced what today would be called repeated childhood traumas and upheaval. And, and research shows that that leads to acting out and various health risks, such as chronic high blood pressure. Does that sound familiar to you? It was uh, it was in the late 1980s that the schools and I thought this was really interesting. The schools began to add untrained, non-specialized security officers on on school campuses, and uh, they they did cutbacks. I was looking at being a school counselor at the time. I know that they cut back on school counselors and they increased putting uh, security officers on, on campuses. And now there's a direct correlation between this shift and the increase in suspensions, expulsions, and juvenile incarceration. Um, and I understand that uh, that's what your next guests are gonna talk about. But I wanted us to take this time to lay the foundation for what that picture looked like for you um, before we got into the whole school system piece. So I wanna thank you for letting me be a part of this. I'm really honored, Philip, to be working with you. Well, you're welcome and thank you for doing it. You know, I love the fact that we were able to uh, have these discussions, they're very important. And hopefully um, one person can be helped from it. I always say if one person can be helped, then we've done something. Hey everybody, um, I just wanted to say, go to my website, Grant Parole to Philip, G-R-A-N-T-P-A-R-O-L-E-T-O-P-H-I-L-L-I-P.com. 
and scroll down, you'll see a link to donate for my legal fees as I'm in need of a criminal attorney. Um, I also have another link to donate to my GoFundMe for mental health expenses. Thank everybody for your support and thank everybody for the love they've been showing me. I appreciate it. And um, God willing, you know, it'll make a difference and I'll be home soon.